Well, bravo. Say if that don't if that don't make you girls want to keep practicing the piano, I don't know what will. Anyhow, well, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Good morning to y'all. We're gonna um continue our study of the Book of Revelation. We're gonna be doing all of Chapter Three today. So as my brother David would say, I hope you got your good shoes on. Revelation Chapter Three, and when you find it, would you please stand? Revelation chapter 3 verse 1 And to the angel of the church in Sardis write The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars I know your works You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God Remember then what you received and heard Keep it and repent if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Stardust, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus, in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of, of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write him. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be a rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I, repute, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. 
Father, again, we are thankful to be here this morning. Thankful to be able to come before you boldly, uh, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done in our behalf. Lord, we look to you for grace. Grace to enable us to hear, just as Jesus instructs in these passages we've been looking at, uh, not, not merely with the physical ear, but that these truths, your word, may sink deep into our inner man and take effect as you desire. May our lives be changed, molded, conformed to the image of Christ so that in all that we do, in whatever time we have remaining in this world, we may be able to faithfully serve your kingdom purposes you've designed for it, that we may be able to bring glory and honor and praise to your name. Father, make us faithful witnesses of you, of your truth. For your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. One other thing I would like prayer for that I I neglected to mention earlier is um, a a friend and a co-worker of mine um, is pastor of a rural church uh, down in the Kichai area in Caddo Parish and he's invited me to come speak next Saturday at, a, at an event that they're having <clears throat> um, I, I, my understanding is it's in honor of him it's a, it's a pastor pastor's banquet uh, in honor of him and his wife I suppose and so anyway I appreciate your prayers for that as well that's next Saturday afternoon alright um, well I hope you have your running shoes on because um, a lot here to cover, all right? <laughs> so, so we're going to hit the ground running. And, and uh, I, I did feel, uh, again, that it, was, it would help to take all of this together, um, but it is a lot. And if you have, again, if you have questions or, you know, something arises uh, as we're moving through this that, that, that uh, maybe I don't cover, uh, touch on this morning, then, then uh, make a mental note of it or, or jot it down, whatever you need to do, and we, and we can uh, look at it tonight. Uh, and we'll have... We'll plan on having some opportunity for some interaction on, on, uh, on this tonight. All right, so we're looking at the remainder of the seven churches here. Remember, just to put us in context, um, what, what's going on here with the book of the Revelation, what we're uh, repeatedly referring to as the Revelation, because that's what it is and that's what it's called. Um, the Apostle John is being given uh, special revelation, insight, uh, visions, in fact. Um, of things that the Lord is is going to do, and I'm looking. If you kind of put yourself back in time in John's position, what what we're what we're looking at is things that are going to happen somewhere in the future. Now, the way that that helped them, and the way that that helps us, is because um, these prophetic um, um, pronouncements, these, these this glimpse into, and some of this is still future yet, the, these glimpses into what is to come, shine light back on. Um, our experiences now, uh, just for example, you, know, you think about the big picture, to know that in the end, Christ is victorious. He emerges champion, victor, conqueror over, over all of his opposition, over death, hell, all of Satan himself and all of his helpers. Christ emerges victorious. To, to be able to look forward into the future and see the outcome that, that brings light on our present 
situations and helps us understand them and helps us endure them, which is one of the major purposes of, uh, of this book, I think. That is, Christ is, is making these things known for the endurance of the church so that we may um, have strength, be strengthened in our present circumstances to endure. So here's the Apostle John. He's been exiled for his testimony, his Christian testimony, and he's on the island of Patmos, and God is giving him these visions. Now, where we are at currently, um, Jesus is giving John, dictating, you might say, these letters, individual letters to seven individual congregations, seven churches in Asia. We have them listed here a couple of times. Um, the whole list, for example, back in chapter 1 and uh, verse 10 or 11, rather. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Here they are. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, we covered the first four last week, first four letters, and that was in chapter 2. You had the letter to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira. And so this morning, we get the, the final three, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I've been characterizing them this way. Um, and hopefully this is helpful. Um, and, for example, you go back to chapter 2, the church at Ephesus you might want to call um, the loveless church. And, and, I, and the way I put that in my own notes was uh, love hyphen less because um, I, all of these are churches, all right? So you, you look at Ephesus' problem, well, they've left their first love. But, but I don't think that indicates that they had no love whatsoever, but they had, um, they had lost the love that they had in the beginning. So their love was not as strong. So they loved less, or they had less love than they started out with. Tragic. And then Pergamum, the misled, uh, a good example of a misled church with all of the, the false doctrine that was going on there. And then similarly, Thyatira, um, we, we, um, we called Tolerant. And, and you see um, compromise in both of these churches, Pergamum and, and Thyatira, compromise with the culture that they're in. So Thyatira also was uh, um, tolerating um, false doctrine. There seems to be even, even participation here in some very um, ungodly activity. Again, we, we discussed all of that pretty much last week. And so now we get to the final four, and the first one is... Uh, and this, by the way, that's that's I'm not I have not uh, uh, started talking about basketball there. I know when you say Final Four immediately uh, in in the in the month of March, you know what, what comes in people's minds. But uh, no, we're talking about the Final Four churches here, seven congregations of Asia, and and the first of the final uh, three. I'm sorry, I keep saying four. First of the final three is Sardis. All right, Sardis. And. Um, Couple of ways I would characterize this church, but let's let's to put it in one word. Let's say asleep. All right, we're gonna we're gonna be nice, give them the benefit of the doubt. Jesus says they're dead, but then he tells them to wake up. Right, so so we're gonna we're gonna say they they they're asleep. They fall into sleep at the wheel, or you might want to say it this way. Um, I think what you got here is an example of a nominal church. That is, they're a church um, in name only. They're not living up to what. They're, they're calling themselves and what they are being called. Uh, and that is a church, a, a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, they, they seem to be immersed in, in uh, what we might, what, or at least what we call today, uh, cultural Christianity. Um, there's an appearance of life, 
but no, no real life. Or you can think of it this way. There's a body, the congregation. There's a body, but no spirit. So it's like a corpse. And the life of the church is the spirit, right? And, and specifically, the spirit of God is what we're talking about. We're not just talking about a, an attitude or something like that. But the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The life of the church is the Christ-exalting spirit of God. And a church that has the spirit of God will be marked by love. Love which shows itself in God-glorifying good works. One of the things we should notice here um, repeatedly, repeatedly, is the, the use of the term works. Over and over and over, Jesus says, I know your works. I know your works. I know what you're doing. So it's, it's, there's a, a high emphasis on what they are doing or what they are failing to do. Okay? So, um, and you've got both in, in, with most of these churches. But um, uh, two, I pointed out before, where you don't really have any rebuke, and that is um, Philadelphia, which we're going to consider in a a few moments here, and then also back in chapter 2, Smyrna. There was was no rebuke for Smyrna. Maybe a slight rebuke for Philadelphia. I'll I'll explain that when we we get there. But um, but for the most part, it's just, just commendation. It's just positive. So here's what Jesus says to Sardis. And again, just to kind of use our pattern that we laid out last week, we we start with Jesus' own identification of himself, his self-identification. And he says here in verse 1, the words of him, referencing himself, him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, every one of these um, self-identifications that Jesus uses is, is taken from the description of him back in chapter 1. When John has, at the beginning of this vision, sees the glorified Christ, um, you know, Jesus is pulling attributes from there concerning himself. And they usually have some application to the, uh, well, probably always, but usually it's kind of evident application to the, to the church that he's dealing with. So here he says, um, he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, the seven stars we noted earlier, those are the messengers to the seven churches. And by the way, you find that in, the, in uh, verse 20 of chapter 1. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels. Um, that word there uh, can be translated messengers. The seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, so Jesus is once again identifying himself as the one who holds the seven stars, the messengers of the churches in his hands, and as the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, we, we, we dealt with that earlier, too. Um, that is probably uh, symbolic for uh, the fullness of the Spirit or, or perhaps uh, the, the, the many um, ministries, you could say, or operations of the Spirit. Uh, seven is often used as a number representing completion completion or perfection. Uh, so there again could, could be a way of referencing the, uh, the perfection of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and all of His perfections. And notice it's, it's, it's used here, you know, seven, seven spirits, which correlates with the seven churches, right? So it probably also uh, has some meaning there just, just in that you, you've got the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working directly and personally in each congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus says um, of himself, he is the one who has the seven spirits of God. Uh, and again, I think that's just a way of re- referencing the Holy Spirit. So he's the one who, who um, has the life-giving spirit and the seven stars. Now he says, I know your works. So here, here comes his assessment of the church. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So he starts out with a strong, strong rebuke for the church at Sardis. Um, they, they have a reputation. Of, and this is one reason I say that there's probably an involvement here in what we would call today cultural Christianity. you got all the appearance of being a church. All the, all the, you might even say this way, all the appearance of life, vitality. So much so that that's the way they are viewed. That's the reputation they have. So it seems to be that's, that's the way they are viewed by their community, certainly by themselves. But that's not the view that Jesus has of them. So he says bluntly, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. How does that happen? Well, it's, it's uh, not that hard, really. Uh, sad to say for, for all of us because we're, we're sinners. But how, how does that happen? And what would that look like? Well, you might have a congregation of people, for example, with, with lots of activity, lots of programs, perhaps, um, or maybe even on a simpler um, level, like a, for smaller churches like us, you, you, you may not have uh, a huge amount of, of programs that would you know, kind of have the, the, the community in awe of you. But you've got the activity. You've got church attendance, going through the motions of worship, what is called worship, probably high moral standards. In other words, there, there's morality and it's possible to have these things, you know, that kind of religious activity, even morality, and yet be void of the life-giving Spirit of God. Morality does not equal Christianity. It's, it's, it's amazing. And morality is, is um, part of Christianity. In fact, Christianity really defines it, doesn't it? I mean, the, the, the way to really understand what is good, truly good, and what is truly bad is, is to know God and to know the Word of God. Uh, because anything that is opposed to God or stands in contradiction to the holiness of God, you know, His character, His goodness, that's, those things are bad. Anything that is consistent with, with God and uh, His holiness is good. You know, that philosophers have, uh, like Socrates, have wrestled with these things for, for centuries. How to determine what is good and what is bad. Is there a standard somewhere? Is something good because it meets the standard? Or is, is the, you know, uh, do, we, do we just, we, we, we figure out a standard by, by, by good things? God is the standard. So Christianity d- defines what is good. The character of God defines what is good and what is bad. It defines morality, but morality in and of itself um, does not equal true spirituality, true knowledge of God. So you can have morality and you can have activity and still be dead. 
So in verse 2, Jesus says, Wake up! Right? And, and I like it. He gives imperatives here again. Five this time. Uh, and they are this. And, and, and I, the first one you've got to kind of give in a phrase. But uh, it, it's translated wake up in the English Standard Version. But the imperative is, is actually the, the to be verb in front of it, which is be. Be what? <laughs> Awake. Alert. Watching is what the word means. Be watching. Or, or you could say it this way. Become. Become watching. In other words, the implication is you've fallen asleep. It's like being, being assigned guard duty and you doze off and you go to sleep. And your superior comes along and finds you sleeping and, and, and uh, you know, very gently says, uh, hey, you mind getting up? No, no, it's probably not going to be that way. Wake up! And that's what Jesus is saying. Wake up! Be watchful or become watching. And then he says, strengthen. I'll just give you the, here are the five imperatives and we'll, we'll run back through them. But wake up or be watching. And then the second is strengthen. Strengthen what remains. Third, remember. We've had that one before. Fourth, keep. And five, repent. We've had that one before too. So, so wake up, be watching, and strengthen what remains. And that's one reason I said earlier we'll kind of give them the benefit of the doubt here. In other words, there are, there's some hope. There, there's a little glimmering light of hope there. There's something remaining here. Even though Jesus said, you, you've got a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Yet He says, there's, there's, there's something remaining here. And this is the reason He's talking to them in the first place, I presume. In other words, this, this is a church... It's a legitimate, authentic church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a church that is not fulfilling what Christ has put us here to do. It's a church that has gone to sleep on watch duty. church that has died in one sense and in another sense is dying. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. You see that? So at, there's hope and at the same time it's with this warning... You, you, what is remaining is about to die if you don't do something. If you don't wake up. Strengthen what remains and he says, here's the reason, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, interesting. See, I mean, he's, he's, he's giving the, the, the perspective that really matters. I mean, in the world, he's, he's basically telling them, in the world, you've got this reputation of being alive. But in the sight of my God, Jesus says, your, your works are lacking. They're not complete. I have found your works Incomplete in the sight of my God. So he says, remember, remember then what you received and heard. Very similar to what we saw when he was dealing with Ephesus. Remember from where you have fallen. You've, you've left your first love. Remember from where you've fallen and get back. Go back to where you were in terms of love. He tells Ephesus, you need to, get, you need to go back there. Get back to the love that you had started out with. And similar here. Remember what you received and heard. And no doubt he's talking about the gospel, the truth, the faith, 
once delivered to the saints. Remember, he said, remember what you've heard and received. Keep it. Keep it. That's the fourth imperative. That is, guard it. You know, hold on to it. Treasure it. Don't let it go. I mean, this is a, a the thing that we often fail to see. Um, we're in, we're in the middle of hostile territory. It's it's not as though we're we're walking through this life without any opposition. No, things are coming at us constantly to steal away what we have received in the Lord. So guard it, keep it, and repent. Repent. That's another way of saying, in, in, in this sense, you know, wake up. That's what he's talking about when he says to wake up. Re- repent. Repentance. Turn from your errors. Stop being deceived about your condition. And seek true life. A church without the Spirit has no life. Now, he says, if you don't, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So, there's, there's a warning, right? Sudden judgment. If you don't wake up, I'm going to come in sudden judgment, like a thief. There won't be any warning. You'll be taken off guard. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis. Verse 4. A people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now mark that. They are worthy. Because that mark that because that's 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 what we're looking for. That's what we're striving for. To be found worthy. And Jesus says, There's some here in your midst that are. They have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is a recurring theme, actually, um, in Jesus' teaching. And uh, I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. But I, I want you to think of it this way, too. I, I like uh, Matthew Henry's comment on that. And he says he's, he's not talking, I'm just going to paraphrase it, but he's, he's not talking about... Uh, when, when Jesus says they are worthy, he's not talking about merit, but meetness, M-E-E-T. In other words, fit, fitness. And what, what he's saying essentially is that their, their conduct, their works, fits their confession. I mean, they, they, they call themselves believers in Christ. They call themselves a church. Well, he says there are a few among you whose works and con- you know their manner of life, their conduct actually fits that. It is, it is, their life is fitting to what they claim, to what they proclaim. In Ephesians 4, I'm just give you a... Um, I said this is what we're looking for. Here's, here's an imperative for us um, from Paul in Ephesians 4. All of this is for us, actually, but... But uh, here Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which 
you have been called. You, you see what he's saying? Walk worthy to the calling to which you have called. In other words, your, your, your conduct, your lifestyle must fit Christianity, the calling to which you've been called, the Christian life. Now, Jesus uses, I'll give you a couple of examples here from, from uh, Jesus as well. He uses the same word for worthy, same word that's used here in Revelation 3. For example, in Matthew 10, um, he's he, teaching this along the same lines. He says, For I have come to set a man, this is Matthew 10, 35, For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, he's demanding, calling for total commitment. And he's saying, if you're, if you're not willing to do these things, you're not worthy of me. Now, that is, your life and your conduct doesn't jive with, with your confession to be a follower of me. And it's, it's not going to work. Here's another one. Um, different word, but um, same teaching. And, and uh, Luke 9, Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Talking about himself, of course. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my, at my home. Jesus said to him, here it is, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now there, that word fit is a different word from the one used in Revelation, but you see it's the same idea, and that's one reason I'm giving it to you, because I think that's what he's saying in Revelation 3. In other words, he's saying there are some among you whose conduct is fitting to their confession. No one who, ha- who puts his hand to a plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's not um, matching up. All right, so then he says um, the promises. Verse, verse 5, back in Revelation 3, verse 5, promises to those who conquer, the overcomers. Another, another reoccurring theme all the way through here. We are called to conquer. And boy, what a difference. Here's something to meditate on sometime. What a difference. <laughs> The Christian biblical version of that is than say that of Islam. And Jesus is not calling us to take up guns and swords and bombs and conquer the world in that sense. No. He's calling us to overcome the world, that is, um, the evil of this world, by enduring in the midst of it. By, by living by a totally different standard. By being set apart. That's how we overcome. We live godly in this present age. 
So, the one who conquers, verse 5, will be clothed thus in white garments. And I think all the way through here, the white garments um, represent righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Those who conquer will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Probably a way to understand that. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So he gives them um, assurance for overcoming assurance of eternal life. Eternal security, he promises to them. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's that exhortation again. Hear what I'm saying. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the congregations. Now, secondly, Philadelphia. And this, again, is not Pennsylvania, but it's one of the seven churches in Asia. The the name, Philadelphia, uh, actually means uh, brotherly love. So it's a city of brotherly love. And, of course, they, uh, you've probably heard that nickname used for Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I don't know how much that holds true there. <laughs> but i uh, got my doubts about that. But uh, at least these people, once they came to know Christ, um, must have been exhibiting that kind of love because he has uh, commendation for them. To the angel or messenger of the church in Philadelphia, verse 7 says, Write. The words of the Holy One who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So now his self-identification, he puts himself before them as the Holy Sovereign of the universe. The Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. In other words, he's sovereign. He rules sovereignly. He does what he pleases. And no one can stop or change what he does. That's good news for the church. I mean, it's, he's, he's giving us, in all of these truths, he's giving us some rocks to stand on, right? Some solid ground. So that when we're facing whatever it is, you know, hardships, persecutions, whatever it is in this world, we understand God is in control. The Lord whom we serve um, it, it's, it, it's better to obey Him, even if it makes trouble for us now, because He's in control. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. So, He says, I know your works. There's that phrase again, verse 8. I know what you're doing. And behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. There again, good news for the church. And I, you know, because we're, we're called to, Preach the gospel, right? Take the gospel to the nations. So Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, um, and we're going to see in a moment, you know, for their, their faithfulness, I've set before you a door that nobody can shut. You, you can do what I'm calling you to do because no one can shut the doors that I'm opening for you. Right? I know that you have but little power, and yet... You have kept my word and have not denied my name. So this church, the church at Philadelphia, I would, I would, I'm calling the, the weak but faithful church. There, there's some great encouragement here. Jesus talks about their faithfulness and he, and he makes these promises to them. And it's not based on their power. I mean, he doesn't say, well, it's because you're strong and mighty and, more, you know. No, no, no. You're weak. I mean, you, you've just got little strength. So I want you to know, I'm, I'm opening doors that nobody can shut. 
With your little strength, you can't open them. And with your little strength, you may fear to uh, fight those who oppose. So you need to know that I'm in control, is essentially what he's saying. You have little power, and yet you have kept my word. So they're faithful. They're faithful to the Lord, in spite of the fact that they they have uh, little power. You know what? A little grace is still grace, right? And you remember what Jesus said about faith as a grain of mustard seed? I mean, a little faith, he said, can, can move mountains. So you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Well, two things there is the, the promise of vindication, right? Because he's talking about their enemies, those who oppose them, who are giving them fits. I'm going to make them come and bow down before you, and they're going to know that I have loved you. So at the same time, he gives them assurance of, of vindication and assurance of his love for them. God's power. It's made known in our weaknesses, right? That's what Paul learned in his weaknesses and, and, and communicated to us. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So, um, here's, here's again, assurance, a promise of, of, uh, of, of being kept in the midst of Tribulation. It's not. It's not as though it, it's going. The, the evil in this world is going to overcome us and undo us. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, right? And actually, by the way, I, I think that 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 uh, if to draw a parallel, I think that principle really goes better with what he says in, in verse seven. Um, I'm opening a door for you, which no no one will shut. Um, because when you, when you think about the, what do gates do? Gates, gates are designed to keep something out, right? Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. In other words, the, the picture seems to be is like we're attacking the very gates of hell. And Jesus is saying they're not going to prevail. A lot of times th- that gets reversed. And people take that to, to mean uh, you know, more of a defensive thing. You know, like hell's attacking us and, and it's not going to prevail against the church. But, uh, but I think what, <laughs> the picture there is, uh, is the church... Um, attacking the works of Satan, which is what Christ did himself. And they won't prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail. All right? So he says, I am coming soon, verse 11. Boy, we could spend a lot of time on that, couldn't we? I am coming soon. You might say, well, it doesn't look like it's very soon. It's been 2,000 years. Um, well, he's coming, and he's coming soon uh, on his timetable. I'm coming soon. Now, here's the exhortation. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast. Get a good grip. Seize it. That word is used that way sometimes or even to make an arrest. Hold on to it so that no one may seize your crown. Remember earlier, he's promised a crown of life. So I think that's what he has in view here. In other words, don't lose your crown. He's using an analogy. Uh, you know, like a, like an uh, Olympic runners. You know, they would they would uh, competitors of any kind really. They would they would compete, and then one of them got the crown, and that's the, what is uh, is pictured here a, a reef type of of crown, woven crown. 
Don't let anybody get your crown. Verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Uh, again, this is more assurance of eternal life and blessing. Never shall he go out of it. That's, that's a parallel statement to what he says back in verse 5. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So he'll come in the temple, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of, God, of my God and the new, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from, uh, from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So he's saying you're going to be marked as belonging to God, being his forever and ever and ever. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, to the church at Laodicea. And this is what I'm calling the indifferent church. The indifferent church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words. Here's his self-identification. These words, uh, the, the words rather, of the Amen. I like that. The Amen. The faithful and true witness. And by the way, that's, that's going to be, um, you know, it's just kind of emphasizing what, what I'm about to, to, to tell you. The assessment that I'm about to give you is true, trustworthy, because I'm the faithful and true witness. The beginning of God's creation, the first. I think the idea, idea there is uh, not that He was created. He was not created. But He is the preeminent one over all of creation. The beginning of God's creation. I know your works. There it is again. Jesus knows the works of His congregations. Good and bad. He knows. He's totally, totally familiar. He knows exactly what we do, why we do it. He knows our works. Listen to what he says. Interesting. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And then he gives some reasoning. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I, have, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, they just seem to be indifferent to spiritual things. They're all caught up in this life. I'm, you know, they, they, they're satisfied with where they are in this world, what they have. I'm rich, have need of nothing. They don't, they don't have any passion for pursuit of Christ. Don't need that. No, no passion for growth spiritually. Indifferent. Indifferent to spiritual things. Neither hot nor cold. And I, I think that means this. And by the way, this is another thing, uh, the way I would uh, signify this church. The useless church. Because I think that's what he's getting at when he says you're neither hot nor cold. One of the things that, that helped me the most with that in terms of an illustration um, came from Brother Carl. And, and he just talked about uh, using the, the, uh, the, to illustrate this, he was using uh, food and drink. You know, certain things you like hot, right? I like my coffee hot. Certain things you like cold. A lot of people like iced tea. I mean, you want it cold. Or maybe you drink uh, Coke or something, you like them iced down. You want them ice cold. That's the way you find them most useful, right? Hot or cold. Same way with food. You know, some foods are good hot. You know, I don't, I, I don't stick my salad in the microwave <clears throat> and warm it up. But I do, you know, 
roast beef or something like that. I want it warm. I want it hot. It's useful that way. And if it's lukewarm, what do you do? Spit it out of your mouth. At least that's my reaction. Now, my wife's funny in that way. She likes stuff lukewarm. But uh, not, not me. I don't. Spit it out of your mouth. I mean, at least that's what you're tempted to do. It's just not useful the way it is. I, I say all that because a lot of times people look at this and they somehow they get we get the idea when, you know, when Jesus says you're neither hot or cold, I wish you were either hot or cold, that he means I wish you were either for me or against me. You know, be hot or cold. But that's No, no, no. He doesn't want the church against him. He's not, he's not saying I wish you were either for me or against me. He's saying I, I want you to be useful. Hot when you're supposed to be hot. Cold when you're supposed to be cold. Useful. I mean, it's, it's just a picture of usefulness. And, and interesting, um, uh, in, in a way that, that appeals to the taste. In other words, the, su- the suggestion here is that Jesus finds this church offensive, like something that, that tastes bad. So I spit you out of my mouth. I vomit you out. Because you just put a bad taste in my mouth. It's the useless church. Satisfied with this world. Rich. See themselves as rich. In need of nothing. Not realizing, Jesus says, you don't don't have the spiritual awareness to understand to see that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Again, he's giving his own perspective, God's perspective, up against theirs. So he's got a challenge for them. Advice, counsel, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. Put your faith to the test. Find out if it's genuine. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. Again, they're um, referring to righteousness, I think. So that you may clothe yourself in, in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And I counsel you to buy salve to anoint your eyes. You see, he wants them to, to, to have the right perspective, to, to see their own state. As it really is. And then he gives this amazing word in verse 19. I say, amazing, because if, if you think, in the midst of all this rebuke, you think about this word coming next. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. You know what? He never had to, to, to speak to him in the first place. He doesn't have to speak to us. I mean, in other words, he could have, he could have just come in and annihilated them. But he loves his church. And the discipline is designed to make us holy, right? To grow us in grace and in the knowledge of him. So he says, I discipline you because I love you. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, more exhortation. So be zealous and repent. And then he gives this invitation in verse 20. And you know what? This is the last of the seven letters. And, and I think we could, we, you could just make this applicable across the board. 
In other words, for this section, you could say, this is the way he's closing out. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's an invitation to intimacy with Christ. And that's what Jesus wants with his church. And that's what he wants us to want. Intimacy. So, so he pictures himself standing at the door knocking. Isn't that something? That's an amazing picture. I mean, this is the, this is the Lord of glory. Knocking on the door of an indifferent church that if but for His mercy, I mean, He could just annihilate. Instead, He says, I'm knocking. And you know what? If you open the door, I'm going to come in and we're going to have some sweet fellowship. Sweet fellowship. And the overcomers are the conquerors that we keep seeing, alluded to. Here it is again in verse 21. The one who conquers, the conquerors are the ones who do what he's saying do. Who just trust him. Get, get back to the love they had at first. Reject the false doctrine that is so prevalent. Wake up! out of dead sleep. Stop being indifferent and have a passion for the pursuit of the glory of God and the knowledge of Christ. That's, that's who the conquerors are. Ones who just simply do what He says. And, and you can sum it up in two words. Follow me. Remember those examples we read from the Gospels a moment ago? Follow me. Well, okay, Lord, I will, but... No. The conquerors are the ones that just follow. They just come on and go with Him. And so He says again, I, to those who conquer, I will grant to Him to sit with Me in My throne. More promises of eternal life. As I also conquered and sat down with My Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what? I don't think it's a stretch. In fact, I think the structure of the language here even bears this out. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that the Spirit is saying these things to the church today. Or to the churches. The various congregations. The Spirit is speaking these things to the church today. And that's why we have it recorded. And that's why we're told at the beginning of the book, Blessed is he who reads aloud and who hears. The words of this book, the words of this prophecy, because the Spirit is speaking. And to those who overcome, those who conquer, all of these promises become reality. Would you stand, please? We'll dismiss with a, <clears throat> with a word of prayer. Joel, you mind leading us? And we'll be dismissed.